Are we doing enough to hold parents accountable for all that they should be doing for their kids? And what's up with predictive analytics and how they help us identify the kids that struggle the most? We're going to talk about all of that on the Citizen Stewart Show. Welcome to the Citizen Stewart Show, a podcast about education in America, where we dive deep into the top headlines and add new perspectives about our schools and our democracy. I'm your host, Chris Citizen Stewart, Chief Influencer of EdPost, a media platform focusing on educational opportunity and justice for every child. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Ravi Gupta, a former Obama staffer and a former superintendent of a network of charter schools in the South. Robbie, how you doing, man? Can't complain. Beautiful here in New York City. I imagine the same's out there in Minnesota. I'm going to give it to you today. I'm not going to rag on New York. It's beautiful in New York City, I'm sure, today. And yes, it is beautiful in Minnesota. We're finally completely melted and things are turning green and the little deer and everything are coming, you know, out in mass now. And it's looking good. It's looking good. But I want to throw a few things out at you. First, just to get your take on them right away. How's that? Sure. Let's do it. Lightning round. Yeah. Lightning round on a few things. Okay. So it comes out today that a law passes in Florida. Governor DeSantis is at it again, and he passes a law that eliminates the ability for colleges and universities to spend money on diversity programs, diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. And of course, as we've been talking about for months, also changes the way that race can be talked about in schools. So what say you on just the headline? Well, I'm generally skeptical of any measure that ties the hands of university or school administrators. I generally want to give them as much freedom to build their own program as they want. So not knowing exactly what he calls diversity, equity, and inclusion, on the face of it, it seems like something I would oppose. All right. I'm with you on that one, but it's lighting around. We got to keep going. Going to the NBA, John Morant suspended after video show him with a gun again. For those of you listening who might be wondering what this is about, he's a NFL player on the Memphis Grizzlies who already has been in trouble for doing things on camera on his Instagram live, like showing a gun in a nightclub, blah, blah, blah. But now he's just done it again. And it begs the question, number one, do we expect too much of sports stars? Should we be allowing our kids to look up and expect that basketball players are somehow role models, which they're not? And do you really care even whether or not basketball players are Boy Scouts? What's the big deal? Well, I think it's a workplace thing. Is how I treat it. I haven't seen too much hemming and hawing outside of this where people are, you know, it doesn't seem like the outrage culture has really come for John Morant too much, but it does seem like the NBA as a workplace has said, look, we have a policy. You violated it before. We suspended you before, essentially. They sent him for treatment, ostensibly. Morant himself acknowledged that there was a problem. At the end of the season, he said that his own behavior led to his team's early exit from the playoffs. So he acknowledges that it's affecting the performance on the court, which everybody seems to acknowledge. And then he went ahead and did it again. So both from his own standard and from the standard of the workplace, he seems to have crossed the line and he should accept the consequences. You know, in in other sports, you know, in, in the NFL, they suspend people for a whole season for gambling on things that aren't even related to the games that they're playing. Like if you just gamble on somebody else's game, they'll suspend you for a whole year. You know, this guy, meanwhile, was brandishing a gun again after he and everybody else acknowledged it was wrong. Well, stop there, Ravi. Stop there for a second. What was wrong about showing a gun in a video on Instagram? Well, I think this is the question of the NBA itself and Morant both acknowledge that they are, in fact, role models. Now, I could have my own opinion about whether NBA players should be role models or not, but that is their premise. And the minute you accept that premise, 
and you accept the rule and you break it repeatedly now at this point, even after acknowledging that you agree with the rule, that to me means that you should accept the consequences of what comes next. And I can't by fiat, nor could you, decide who kids look up to or not. And Morant is one of the most popular NBA players. Young people are looking up to him right now. So I think like if he's brandishing a gun, and I don't know what his other issues may be, I'm sure the Memphis Grizzlies know more, then he's got to take that responsibility. He gets paid a lot of money and has a lot of fans. And with that comes more consequences if you step out of line. My quick take on this one is I don't have a big take on it, except to say uh, it seems like situational ethics. So we all saw members of Congress send out Christmas cards last year, brandishing guns. And not just guns, but the kids, the whole family, guns, you know. You do this thing sometimes, Chris, where you do this thing where you're like, okay, so some people don't get mad at that other thing. Therefore, we shouldn't get mad at anything. No, no, not we. The actual people expressing outrage are the ones I'm talking about. Like if you have situational ethics, nothing bothers me more than situational ethics. Like you'll call it out with this group, but you won't call it out with the other group. But the thing is like Adam Silver, who runs the NBA, I'm pretty sure he probably doesn't love members of Congress brandishing guns either. I'm not sure what his position is on it. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm yeah. not sure he's got an issue here. And, and yeah. largely he's the decision yeah. maker here. And, you know, the same is true of the NFL Players Association. These are largely liberal groups who probably don't love gun culture, generally speaking. This one will take you way out of your comfort zone. So Ebony K. Williams, who is known to many in the juggernaut of social media and of Real Housewives fame, actually sparked a big ass debate because she was asked, you know, should black women date bus drivers and date below their educational status? And she said, no, I'm sick of mediocrity. She said, I'm sick of treating people who get C grades as if they're excellent and they're not. And I think bus drivers, you know, make good mates if they own the bus and that's it. And she's like, I don't know why I should have to lower my standards. And she's just like, you know, we should raise all of our standards. We should stop being mediocre about our expectations of life and things like that. So it sparked a debate around, can a bus driver be a good person? Are they not exceptional just because they drive a bus type of thing? And this became a big issue on social media. Well, everybody's entitled to their own standards. Obviously, when she universally it, it, it's a little different, but there's a whole language out there and discussion around credit scores and like credit score being like the most important thing you should ask somebody on a date, et cetera. And I, I don't see a problem with that. Like, I think it's transaction. You don't? I mean, look, like people are entitled to ask you anything about you that matters to them. And if somebody values that, like that level of transparency and, and honesty is actually really important in a relationship because if you think about what couples fight about, money is really high on the list. And so if you don't think about money the same way and if somebody's a little bit more loose and taking, you know, more risky behavior than you're comfortable with, then that's probably an important thing for you to know on the front end. Now, I would say that bus drivers, I think, are really important to society. I think especially school bus drivers have one of the hardest jobs in the educational system because they not only have to drive a bus, which is not easy, but they often have to drive a bus being the only adult supervising a bunch of kids. So you basically have to have the classroom management skills of a teacher while also driving a bus, you know, it, incredibly unsafe situation. So I have a lot of respect for bus drivers. I think that we should really hold them up as educators and a, a key members of the educational system. So I don't love the shot at bus drivers, but she's entitled to have her own standards. And whether I agree with it or not, I think honesty is always better than pretending like you're more egalitarian than you are. But what do you think? I think she's tapping into what should be considered a high value man. And she's talking a lot about like what women really want from men and what a man should be and what makes a man high value. And a lot of that relates to income and status and education. I mean, listen, I saw something yesterday about this high value male thing in the manosphere. And there's literally a 
group of people that are preaching to be a high value male, don't form a family early, get a vasectomy in your 20s is on their list of things on the road to becoming a high value male. If you focus exclusively on getting ripped, making money, all that stuff, eventually by 30 or 31, you will be the highest of high value males. If you have had no kids, you haven't formed a family, if you work out every day, if you read the Stoics, and if you focus on money. I think this stuff can go to the extreme, but I think it's correcting for also something that was not great. I think the idea that people are trying to get healthy, they're trying to get their finances in order, they're trying to delay any life-altering decisions until they're more mature. Like, yes, there's like an extreme to it all, but I think by and large, I'm okay with the trend, even if it's a little bit icky to see it in practice. All things being equal, if I talk to a 22-year-old who's like, hey, I want to wait till I'm 30 to have kids, I'd be like, I don't know anything about you, but probably statistically, that's not a bad idea. Well, I hope my 32-year-old is not listening to this, man. (laughs) If you're listening to this right now, I want some grandchildren. (laughs) Knock it off. Don't listen to Ravi. (laughs) Let's move on to the next topic of this discussion here, because uh, Ravi is like actively ruining my chances of getting grandchildren here. I'm sorry. Listen, a lot of what we talk about in Ed World, and I want to talk about this here today as one of our first kind of topics, is around parents. And we have seen a parent's bill of rights offered by both political parties nationally. There's been a Republican version of the parent's bill of rights, and there's been a Democratic version of the parent's bill of rights. There's all this talk around parents where we lionize them, we valorize them, we elevate them politically to the point where it damn near seems like they're all saints and they can do no wrong. I think that's important for one reason, which is parents are the first teacher in the lives of children. They're the main guardian of their children when they do do their jobs. They're the main guardian of their children. And society always has and should always have a special outlook about parents, the people who are raising the next civilization. Barring Ravi's previous conversations that he has had on this show about like childless people being so oppressed by parents, I do think that parents deserve a special role within the workplace, within society, because they are doing an important job, not to the extreme. But that raises a different question, though. Does anybody ever talk about the parents' bill of responsibilities and what society does when parents actually are not living up to their responsibility of the parents? We give all of this gas to them to like jack them up, you know, to be on this pedestal. And at the same time, do we ever say, you must do your job and you must do your job well? And if you don't, society is going to step in. And at what point do we do this? What made me think about this is there's this New York Post article called, Why is our society so lenient towards parents who mistreat their kids? And in it, it talks about how in the cases of real harm being done to children, that parents get away with harm done to kids in a way that a non-parent doing the same thing to a kid would never get away with it. Including, and you know, trigger warning here, including when children die at the hands of their parents or they're abused to the extreme, An average person doing that to a child would be sent away forever. But a parent oftentimes can sidestep any serious kind of consequence. And in many cases, it's because we're thinking there's a cultural reason that they did it. Or losing your child is enough of a punishment itself that you have to live with. So there's no need for further punishment. In this article, it talks about Jalissa Baddies and Zamir Perkins, who left in homes to be killed by their parents despite clear signs of unspeakable abuse. Instances like these demonstrate the consequences of excusing parental maltreatment. Non-parents receive significantly higher sentences for child maltreatment compared to parents, indicating a disparity in the sentencing. Lower sentences for parents are attributed to expressions of remorse and the belief that parental loss is punishment enough. 
along with the fear of breaking up families and the difficulties in making children testify against their own family members. Well, Chris, why do you care about this? Why is this a big deal? I don't think it's just about these extreme cases where kids are being done harm. I do think it's about the question that leads this article, why is our society so lenient towards parents who mistreat their kids, could easily be read, why are we so lenient about parents just not doing their jobs, period, in many ways to make things happen for kids. So, Ravi, let's start there. Well, I did click through the New York Post article because they cite this report from Minnesota that's called Minnesota Child Fatalities and Maltreatment. It looked at 88 child maltreatment fatalities between 2014 and 2022. And it found that, quote, the average sentence for non-parents is substantially higher than for parents with a difference of about 82.1 months. And it goes through some really egregious cases. Five-month-old Aaliyah Goodwin was smothered to death following eight reports to child protection over seven years, documenting that both parents were chronologically incapacitated by drugs and unable to take care of her and her older siblings. They talk about Tavion Davis and his siblings who were sexually assaulted by four family members, beaten with hammers and belts, burned with boiling water, deprived of food and sleep as a form of punishment. He was locked in the garage overnight in sub-zero temperatures and froze to death. You can go through the list. This is a really good report. It's a really sad report. And to me, it gets to two things. One is something I mentioned previously on this podcast when we had Adam on, when, if you remember during that discussion, I was like, look, like I'm all for more parent freedom, but we have to acknowledge that there are negligent and malicious parents out there. And this gets to the ESA debate. If you're just handing them money without any strings attached, that could be a drug addict. That could be somebody who's malicious just because like parents are distributed in the population like everybody else. There are good parents, there are bad parents, right? And so we can both say, hey, parenting and having children is something that we hold up as a society, but we could still hold them accountable. I love the way you said we need to talk about not just parents' rights, but parent responsibilities. But two is just that I think this is a hard conversation And I think it's wrapped up in a lot of different things. And I think that there's a bias. I'm not a both-sidezer, but I think from the rights perspective, they just don't like to fund certain programs like, you know, aggressive social work and anything, you know, involving this kind of deep kind of poverty work. And I'm painting with a broad brush. Of course, there are many members of the right who do care ultimately about this kind of stuff. But if you starve the beast, it's hard to even have a proper number of investigators and stuff for this. But then on the left, there's this question of whenever poverty and whatnot is wrapped up, there tends to be excuse making for people to say, hey, well, like the people are well-intentioned or they're subject to the same pathologies where I'm like, sure, Yes, people who are abused abuse other people, but at a certain point, you got to draw the line and say, the act is the act. And if you abuse your children, we're going to take your children away from you. And I know it's a really hard conversation, and I know there's nuances to it, but the minute you harm your kids, like we need to be pretty strict with that, or at least in my belief. How do you see this like translating a little bit beyond the really drastic cases of like a death? In Minnesota, we also have educational neglect in our state law here. So a parent actually could be in legal trouble for educational neglect. And that's not so drastic as a death or a beating or something that's like really that that far beyond. And once we start getting in that territory, I think we start losing people. Everyone can agree that beating children or hurting children that way is bad. But I don't know that all of us can agree that a parent should be responsible for the basics, even in education or getting their kids to school on time, making sure that their kids are educationally progressing and healthy. And I don't know what you would think about that. 
I actually take a hard line on this one. This is one I've been accused of punching down on. But listen, this whole thing around, oh, my parents have three jobs and they can't do anything or whatever. I actually, after many years in social work, don't think that that's actually everybody's situation who doesn't show up for their kids. Yeah. I just think that the government is not well equipped to handle too many things right now. I think in a perfect world, we'd be like doing more aggressive investigations of truancy and attendance and academics and whatnot. But I suspect that we don't even have enough investigators to handle the clear cases of abuse and neglect. At least this data seems to suggest that. Um, Obviously, there are other issues. Like they open with a judge who was very lenient to somebody who was abusing their kid and that kid went up dead. So obviously that's not the investigator's fault. That's the judge's fault and the system's fault generally. But I would start with, just like as I think about crime, right? Like why you start to see liberals saying solve all murders as like their new response to defund the police is to be like, all right, let's walk away from defund the police. And actually let's say, instead of going after all the ticky tack quality of life stuff, which we could debate about, I have complicated views on that. They're saying, well, let's, let's solve murders because we're solving fewer murders than we ever have before. So that's how I'd feel about the child protective services, which is let's devote everything we've got to make sure no kid with any warning signs gets murdered by their parent. Like, obviously, if there's just a totally unpredictable act, there's only so much you could do to prevent that. But to the extent that there is a pattern of abuse, we should be pretty aggressive in taking that kid away from their parent. And I know this is a hard conversation. I dealt with this in the South. There was every excuse thrown at me in the book where people would say, it's the South, people are more comfortable hitting their parents or whatever. Hitting their kids. Hitting their kids. I said this at every orientation and I backed it up 100% of the time. I said, if you tell me you're going to hit your kids, if I have any reason to think you hit your kids without exception, no matter how close I am to you, I'm calling child protective services. This is not my call to make. And I read them the law and I tell them, look, like this is not a nuance. You're going to hate me for it. You're going to want to pull your kids out of the school, which has happened. And it's a very tough call to make. Teachers are in a really tough position on this because they know that if you call, even though it's supposed to be anonymous, everybody knows where the call came from. That parent's going to come. They're going to yell at you. You may never see that kid again, but you have to be consistent on the policy. Otherwise you could become responsible then you got to do what's in the best interest of the kids. You know, teachers will tell you that oftentimes parents tell them to beat the kids. I've had a parent ask me if they could have a private room to beat their kid in the school before. It's absolutely insane. Yeah. And you know what? So if you're listening to this thinking how this actually plays out in education, there's still, I think, 11, maybe more, 12 states that actually still allow corporal punishment in schools, meaning you could still be beaten as a kid officially by educators in the schools. But in this article that we're talking about, there's an advocate who's against spanking, and she's an African-American mother advocate nationally known for an organization that is anti-spanking. And even in her crusade to get the Black community talking about this, she finds a lot of people who hold on to some old beliefs around like, listen, you know, works for me, it'll work for the next generation. And, you know, and Black folks do sometimes make this a complicated story because you'll have a white teacher being told by a Black parent, listen, just whoop his little ass, you know, that sort of thing. And, you know, as an educator, you're kind of like, yeah, I can't just whoop his little ass and I wouldn't whoop his little ass if I could. Right. So in this Minnesota case, it said 15 cases showed signs of child torture and five unambiguously met the definition of torture across three different national and state standards. Nearly half the children died due to actions of someone other than a biological parent, meaning that there was someone else in the house. But this is the part where it becomes kind of tough is the quantitative data and case narratives we assembled raised questions of further study of whether 
counties may have left black children in high-risk settings more often, more frequently, and for longer periods of time than children of other races and ethnicities. And the reason that you might do that, leave those children in that situation more, is not because you hate children or you hate black children. It's because there are these complicated cultural narratives about you know families needing to stay together when they're of color or don't over-subscribe on taking those kids out or attacking the parents. And meanwhile, you're leaving a kid in a situation that is more dangerous and you know that it's more dangerous in your own mind. Don't you think there could be many explanations for that data too, right? I was thinking about this. So if you're like a white liberal, like you're the person who's susceptible to, well, you don't understand what happens in our community and you're going to be like a little bit distant on that. Another explanation for that could also be that if you're not black, you don't look at a black kid with the same empathy as somebody who's black. Those two things could coexist, right? And you don't even have malice. There's study after study that shows this. Like the more somebody is like you, the more empathy you're gonna show. So maybe both of those things are happening. You know, like the white liberals might be afraid to wade in because they don't wanna be accused of like wading into some culture that they don't understand. And then you have like people who are not liberal who are just not seeing the kids for their humanity. I think you hit the nail on the head when it comes to government can't do everything. And these systems are overworked. These social workers oftentimes have too big a caseloads. And in New York, actually, I've seen a couple of cases over the years that were incredibly bad, just terrible cases. And you have to ask yourself, like, what kind of social worker would miss that? And then you go and look and you find out it's a social worker with a caseload of a gazillion. And they've got too many families that they're trying to watch out for things on. And some of their families they haven't seen in like a year or two or more longer. Meanwhile, that kid was walking into a school every day where the teachers were recognizing things like a bruise here and there or a story that doesn't add up. And then who they report it to. They report it to another system that is overworked and overburdened and doesn't have enough people on staff. So government can't do all things. I think this strikes out as state laws should be clear, as clear as possible. They should be as protective as children as possible. They should make clear to all of their systems and their systems actors, like we were all mandated reporters at one point in our life, depending on the different systems that we worked in. There's got to be like some effort put into all of that and at the end of the day, though, this is where I was driving this conversation, is we don't actually expect enough of parents themselves to be good, to be good parents, to be good actors, to be good guardians of children and children's best behavior. And that includes beyond just keeping them physically safe and making sure that they have food and all that type of stuff. It also translates into other things about their development as human beings, right? And someone's going to listen to this. They're definitely going to hear it as punching down. Not everybody can do everything. Families are in such different situations. And I'm sure you had parents at your school that were at all different levels of their ability or their capability. And I bet at all those levels, there was more that they could have been on, on the hook for than what they were doing, right? Yeah. And it's, it happens. You know, I had, uh, this happened to my mom, my, my own school called Child Protective Services because I got in a fight with my brother. He kicked my ass. He was older brother. And I went to school <laughs> and this is such a shameful story, but I was in middle school. I then like, I don't know what I said, but I was so pissed off at my mom for not doing anything to protect me from my brother that I, I didn't like say my mom abused me or anything like that, but I certainly didn't dispel any notions. And so she had to get dragged over to school and basically, and my mom worked two jobs. This was, this is just one of a thousand bad things I did as a kid. And basically we had to have a meeting at the school. There was like all these social workers there and through the conversation, the truth came out. But the thing is they still were like hard on my mom. Cause they're like, yeah, you have a older dude in the house, even if he's the brother, it was bad. I would say 
Like, it's tough. And my mom, yes, my mom could have done more, but she was raising, you know, three kids by herself, working two jobs, you know. There's only so much she could do. She can't physically be there in between me and my brother, you know. And that's why I do give parents enough leeway when the intentions are good. There's no malice. They're trying their best. There's a difference between that and, like, locking your kid in a freezer or beating your kid or something. Yeah. What about never reading a book to your kid? Never taking them to the library? Yeah, that's not my business. Well, it's our business. It becomes our business when you have entire cities that can't read. And then everybody blames the schools and the teachers. Well, I guess I'll put it this way. I will encourage them to do so and maybe incentivize them. But I think once you start using the stick of the law, that's not an area I would be comfortable doing that. I get that. Would your brother tell that story the same way that you just told it, by the way? Yeah. He's beat me up a lot. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to tell a story here that hopefully Tommy keeps in, which is I learned the art of asymmetric warfare when I was a kid. So my brother was bigger than me up until when I was about a senior in high school. And then there was the last time we ever fought in our life and I won that fight. And that, there's a good reason why that was the last fight we ever had. But throughout my childhood, he used to beat me up all the time. Sometimes I would deserve it. Most often I didn't deserve it. That part he'd probably have a problem with. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so I started to come up with other ways to get back at him. So one time I took his, you know, when they used to have like the pump hairspray? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I emptied it out and I put Bacardi rum in the pump hairspray and I just let him use it for weeks and weeks and weeks and he used it as his hairspray. And then I finally told him about it. And of course he kicked my ass, but it was just such satisfaction. I had just watching him go to school every day. So I just got such a kick out of that. It was part of my ways of just getting back at him, you know, cause I couldn't beat him in a fight. Well, anyways, moving on bygones. I want to talk a little bit about, well, first let me set the scene for you. It's the year 2054. The federal government plans to nationally implement the Washington DC prototype called pre-crime police program, which has been operating for six years. Three clairvoyant humans named Precogs receive psychic impressions of an impending homicide and offers analyze their visions to determine the location and apprehend the perpetrator before the crime occurs. This system actually is great because it uses the power of technology and everything else to stop crimes before they actually happen. In this particular story, it doesn't end well because one of the cops working on one of the stories gets framed for a future crime that he himself has not committed and doesn't even know the person that he's supposed to do the crime against. Of course, what I'm telling you about right now actually isn't the actual story in the segment we're talking about. This comes from the movie Minority Report starring Tom Cruise, and it does lead us into the story that we're going to talk about because we're talking about how predictive analytics are being used in some places to determine which kids have a risk in their future of something that is not positive, either dropping out of school or committing crime. We'll start with, though, this is in a publication called The Markup in April called False Alarm, how Wisconsin uses race and income to label students high risk. And administrators at Bradford High School in Kenosha, Wisconsin, used the dropout early warning system. Now, does this sound like Minority Report? It's an algorithm that helps you identify students who are at risk of not graduating on time. It's part of the state system called DEWS, D-E-W-S. See, these things sound so like they're real world. It's not actually a movie. It's actually really happening. The DEWS program utilizes historical data, including test scores, disciplinary records, socioeconomic status, and race to predict graduation rates. The only problem is one district that they looked at that took this to heart and went out and started doing home visits that identified the students that were at high risk and got them kind of like involved in programs and everything else. It turns out that the system is not very good at analyzing which students were at risk. And it turns out that the system was wrong often. But how could that be? They had information, they had an algorithm, they had math and science behind them. They had big data, historical data, 
Like, why wouldn't that be a good thing anyways, you know, to be able to predict? Well, they overpredicted on students of color. They overpredicted on the wrong students of color. They especially overpredicted on black and Hispanic students, labeling them at high risk. And when you label people at high risk, it changes the way that you work with them and you treat them. This one blows up my brain a little bit, Ravi, because I am all for data. I want data. I want data driving our decisions. I want data identifying students that need help. What's wrong here? What's the problem? Here's what makes this interesting. If I told you the following things, a group of administrators and teachers come together and they want to identify the highest risk kids who drop out and they want to get them more resources. Most people would probably agree that's a good thing. If I told you, hey, they're going to take that list and they're going to visit those families over the summer, they're going to go talk to the parents, they're going to set a plan, you'd think that's a good thing too. That was also described in this article. If I told you that they're going to use race as a consideration and say, hey, you know, there's certain marginalized groups that get treated unfairly within the system and we're going to over-index for giving them more resources and help. A lot of people would like that. I think it's complicated, depending on your view of using race for such things. We start to get more controversial territory. So if you told you all those things, most people are like, those are all good things, right? A lot of people would think there's at least two or three of those are good things. And then when you get the algorithm involved, that's when people start getting uncomfortable. And you're like, well, okay, we're going to make it an algorithm. And I find this to be the fascinating step, not just because the algorithm appears to be faulty, right? So there's like an incompetence part of this, which is like one version of the story is good intentions plus incompetence equals bad outcomes is one version of the story. There's another way, and this article could be read either way, is bad intentions or bias is probably a better way to think about it. Bias plus incompetence equals bad outcomes. I'm not sure which of the two it is. I, I tend to think that the intentions here seem to be pretty good when you see them visiting families and stuff over the summer. So I'm like, all right, I understand your motivation. I just think that if you're going to use algorithms, you need to express a higher degree of flexibility and willingness to take feedback and I think the most troubling part of this article, Chris, is one person after another appeared very defensive when being faced with this information. So like, it's one thing you have to be like, hey, sorry, we misfired. We really mm -hmm, wanted to like mm -hmm. identify like the most at-risk kids. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take race out of the equation. We're just going to use this and this, and we're going to refine it. But they seem very defensive, which I think is the most problematic part of this. As like part of your tech brain, though, do you have an idea on why you think it doesn't work? The race thing is, I think, actually like a really tough conversation on this kind of stuff. But I think anytime you're trying to refine your positives and, you know, basically increase the amount of true positives you get, meaning we're going to identify the kids truly at risk and then also limit the false negatives, right? Mm -hmm. Which means you don't want to have too many kids that you're flagging as at risk that aren't. You have to calibrate that, right? Think of it as cancer detection, right? Like I just went through a big deep dive this week on MRI for cancer detection. And as a doctor was explaining to me last week, the MRI is going to have a high false negative, but it's going to do really well on identifying the actual cancers. And that's like a trade-off you make, right? So if you're somebody in an educational context saying, well, if we're gonna sift through all the students and we wanna make sure we never miss a kid who's at risk of not graduating, and it means that we have two X, three X the amount of kids that are truly at risk, I could see a debate among administrators saying that's a cost that we're willing to bear. Mm -hmm. I think it gets complicated when that two to three X and the excess are oversampled among students of color. One person could say, well, if you're just giving them more resources, what's the harm? Which is hard to read from the article because I think some of the kids don't want that attention, right? So if you're a kid of color and you're like, well, administrators keep 
talking to me like I'm in some kind of crisis, but I'm not. And then maybe you start to think you are in a crisis. That's bad. But I understand the intention. And I understand like that this is not an exact science. I actually also don't have a problem with using algorithms. I think they're going to be here to stay. But I just think if you're going to use algorithms, you have to exercise some humility around the use of them. And it seems like some of these people don't want to talk about how they're using them, which is no good. Data is such an important part of everything that I believe that is good about education advocacy. Like the things we should advocate should require some basis of knowing evidence-based teaching evidence-based science instruction and reading instruction and math instruction, use of data to drive instruction that you give in classrooms. So data has this like really unimpeachable place in everything I believe about education. And when we talk about outcomes, outcomes is the thing that I care about most. So we can argue all we want about everything else involved in education policy. And the only thing I'm ever going to want to know about at the end of your pitch is what are the outcomes? Like, how does this improve student outcomes? So, you know, high school on a riverboat, high school in a roller rink, ESA is for everybody, charter schools all over the place, private schools all over the place, traditional district schools all over the place. Fine. I'll be agnostic about all those things. I'll only be religious about the outcomes. So tell me what the outcomes are. So data has this place, but data spooks people. Number one, there's so many privacy concerns. There's the problem with algorithms actually embedding racially kind of you know negative discriminatory factors into algorithms, which we find in big tech anyways. Like, you know, big tech has lots of products where the algorithm is racist kind of until they have a couple years in and they figure out, oh, we've got to adjust this. I'm going to add one thing here because I started this with Minority Report, made it about policing. And, you know, if anybody's confused about, uh, you know, you jumped from policing back to schools and now how does this work out? If you look at a Mark Lieberman article that was in Education Week in November 2020, using student data to identify future criminals, a privacy debacle. There's this case, the Pasco County Sheriff's Office uses academic performance and discipline data from schools, as well as records from the State Department of Children and Families to identify Identify at-risk youth who are destined to a life of crime, according to an 82-page Sheriff's Office intelligence document obtained by the Tampa Bay Times. Slightly more than 400 students out of 30,000 in the district secondary schools are on the list, the Sheriff's Office told us. So the police department has a list of kids that aren't getting the best grades that they have identified, in quotes, at-risk youth who are destined to a life of crime. Well, can I ask you a question about that? Because it does sound problematic to me. Let me frame it like this, and this might not be what's going on. That this is part of a new community policing initiative, and it's a new sheriff who's like, look, we want to work with the community and identify kids who are at risk now so that we can build relationships with them, get them the support that they need before they you know, actually wind up doing anything. I could see why people still hate that just because it's the police department and like there's all sorts of problems with like the data and trusting people who are in a law enforcement background to do stuff that they're probably not equipped to do. But is it possible that's what's going on or are they just literally being like, this is our watch list? I mean, it's hard to know. Like the thing that you're raising right now is the most important thing about this story is transparency, public transparency. I think data should be community owned. And I think the data that's central to studying a community or that's being used for any of the major services should be held in a community data trust. And any activist or citizen or person who wants to be a good citizen should have access to a communal well of all of the information on that, that community that you're in. What is the police department using behind this? Or what are the schools using behind that? What are the city planning people using? But it should be held in one place. Not everybody's going to want to read it. 
Not everybody's a great citizen. Not everybody wants to read through a bunch of boring stuff. But for those that do, and for those that want to be activists or whatnot, there should be a common data source, in my mind, and it should be very transparent. Everything you just actually said determined that there was like goodwill and it was for a good purpose, like community policing. Like you've worked on lots of political races where people are going to have to argue about what's the best way for Democrats to, to think about policing, right? Well, I hope the first way starts with some data, right? Whether you're talking about defund the police or what was the thing you said earlier, like now that they're switching to like give the police pedicures or something? Solve all murders. Not to get all these <laughs> pedicures. Yeah. Solve all I, murders is not trivial. Yeah. Not a trivial thing. Well, I mean, I don't know what it means, but it's just like, I just hope there's some data behind it. So. Well, it means this, and this is coming from the left more than the right, although I, I actually think this is an area where most people can agree, which is we've actually seen murder clearance rates go down as aggressive quality of life policing in certain respects has gone up. And the theory goes that we're spending so many police resources on drugs and things like that. And then we're taking those resources away from like efforts to get to the bottom of murders. And then therefore people are getting away with more murders. Mm -hmm. And so we need to flip mm -hmm. that equation. It's actually an area where I do think that there's an area for significant collaboration between the left and the right, if we're doing this right. I mean, that's the opposite of broken windows. Like the broken windows is sweat the small stuff. <laughs> like you hate this and most New Yorkers hate this. But when I come to New York, my number one favorite place to go and where I get my hotel every single time is where? No. Are you going to say Times Square? Times Square. Every single That's time. Insane. That's every insane. Every single time. It's one of my favorite places there, period. And the thing that strikes me as interesting about it is I never went to New York as a kid or growing up. So I'd never been there. So everything I have in my mind is from TV and from movies. And I can remember as a child thinking, oh my God, this place, New York, which was always Times Square that they would show in movies and other places, looks like this completely unlivable place. I'll never go there. Oh my God, I'll never go. That seems like if you even walk walked one block, you would get mugged at that whole thing. And now I've been there multiple times with each of my kids individually for a special dad trip. We go there, we get a hotel, we walk for hours and they see bright lights and, you know, there's lots of stuff and there's lots of people watching and whatnot. Something that couldn't have happened if there wasn't something in a period of time where someone cleaned up that old thing. Yes. There's a revisionist history about this, in part because Giuliani turned out to be a lunatic. But I believe that you can do broken windows policing and you don't have to do it exactly the way that they did it before. And maybe we just get rid of the whole term broken windows policing. But if you go line by line through the different types of behaviors, a good example being, you know, there's like across the street from where I am right now, there's a group of Yemeni immigrants who run a little convenience store. The other day I saw somebody walk by and spray paint the front window. Now they have to either clean that window and hire somebody special to do that and probably replace the window because it's still up there. Now, why is there no consequence for somebody destroying the property of an immigrant like that? Mm -hmm. You know, like that's a person who works really hard. And I do think there should be a consequence for that. Now, that doesn't need to be three strikes and you're in jail for the rest of your life or something, but I do think there should be a consequence for that. And when I see my friends in, in sort of the criminal justice reform left or like, this person went to jail for two years for spray painting and yada, yada. I'm like, well, okay, they have 20 offenses. And this was the last thing they did after they've been told 50 times not to do it. And I'm sorry, like maybe two years is an appropriate consequence if it's the 20th time you spray painted that Yemeni's front window. Yeah. I feel like we're a little afield, but not entirely, because when it comes to having orderly schools, schools that sound like a school, we talked about it on another podcast around this incident that happened not long ago 
where a student pepper sprayed a teacher who did take her cell phone from her because she wasn't paying attention or whatever. And now everybody's coughing in the hallways because of this pepper spray. It's interrupting the school day. There is no consequence for that particular student. I I put something out on Twitter. I immediately got the typical kind of left-wing response of, you know, all the like stuff that doesn't matter to me. I like an orderly society. I just a week before that got kind of beat up because I tweeted something about New York's kind of turnstile jumpers. There was this report. I saw it. There's all these people professionally dressed, some of them with $500 headphones, jumping the turnstiles, and it's socially acceptable. And all I tweeted was, in some countries... You can leave your baby in a bassinet to take a nap outside of a cafe. And I'm thinking of Nordic countries where they do this because it's better for kids to sleep outside. And this is what we have. We have people fully capable of paying for a thing, stealing, right? Basically theft. And it's so culturally acceptable that it says a lot about our systems of integrity. This takes place in schools. Some schools infractions are infractions. Yeah. If you steal something from another kid or you hit another kid or you scream repeatedly in class, you're infringing on the ability of other kids to have a safe environment or to just learn in a calm environment. Yeah. Now that doesn't mean that you call the NYPD at the first instance of a kid screaming, but you do need to have a ladder of consequences. I do think that the NYPD should be at those turnstiles arresting one person after another. Well, and this is the other controversial point is like, I often hear people like, you know, schools should never be allowed to call the cops. I'm like, well, have you been in a school before? People come to school sometimes with knives. Like, who's going to take that knife away from somebody if they have a knife? That's a liberal whose kid has never had a problem. Yeah, Pleasantville. I have a daughter in schools. I have two kids in schools. Listen, call the police if my kid is assaulted. I don't care. Bottom line, I don't send my kid to school to be assaulted. I don't send them to school for you to have loose ethics and loose kind of ideas about, oh, well, you know, it was just a fight. Boys will be boys. No, goddammit, that was assault, and I need you to do your job. And this is where I get conflicted. Listen, people who are listening to this right now, I just want to say to you, if it ever seems like I'm an enigma in the way that I see things, I don't belong to a tribe. And I do take things on a case-by-case basis, and it is a mix from left to right on some things. In this case, I think the left gets completely wacky on just kind of letting anything just be what it should be. You know, transportation should be free anyway, so I don't mind people jumping the turnstiles. You know, that guy who spray painted the Umeni window of their establishment, he probably had a tough life. So we should just excuse the fact that he's he's defacing. Yeah. When some countries like Singapore, listen, man, the dropping of the gum on the street thing gets your ass caned or whatever, right? The defacing things. And then it's a perfectly clean society, right? The society is pretty clean. It was just too far to be clear, but I know what you're saying. I don't know that it's too far, actually, <laughs> at all. If you look at how clean We're the place this is. We're clipping this for social. But this is where the right gets me on this, too, and this is why it's complicated. This is why I gave my listeners a disclaimer about, like, I have complex ideas. There's also this flip side of thing, which is if my kid is going to school in New York and they're walking home from school. My kid is 13 years old. I love my children. I love my children like nobody's business. If the police stop them and tell them, empty their pockets and get up against the wall and let me check you out because they belong to a group that the police have predictive analytics about are more likely that if we just stop them all and we just do predictive analytics and sweat everything and these kind of race-based stop and frisk things or whatnot, now you have a libertarian problem with my family. Because now I don't give a damn what your analytics say. My kid is 13 years old, is a free American, and should be able to walk home from school without being profiled 
for this type of behavior because you have some analytics that put them in a group rather than treat them as an individual. I totally agree. And I think that they're often mixed in part because the same politicians who are pushing for broken windows were co-mingling it with stop and frisk. Whereas you could treat those two things separately. When I think of broken windows, I think of if you're spray painting that establishment, you're doing something, mm -hmm, all right? Mm -hmm. It's not that you are something, you're doing something. Mm -hmm, the minute you start mm -hmm. doing something, then the government can treat you like somebody who has done that thing. The moment that you start doing a crime, you become a criminal, yeah. which is different. My kid walking home from school is not yet a criminal. Yeah, it's for who they are, right? It's for who they are, not what they've done. Yeah, it's just who they are. Right, and that's different to me, and that is unacceptable. And that's a left-right problem. On the left, we'll have a society where everybody can do anything. We just break all the windows, spray paint everything up, jump to turnstiles, run into TJ Maxx and grab handfuls of clothes and run out. Out because you know those companies spend billions of dollars and you know they deserve it kind of and it's like bottom line question do you want to live in a community where you're tj maxx where you're there shopping with your kids and people run in and grab handfuls of stuff and run out with them is that the look of the community that you want on the flip side though i don't want police officers who look at my kid and say hey you fit the profile so we should just arrest you anyways well anyways listen i think this is a good place to stop with this this part of the conversation really was about the way that data is important but how it's being used is not always effective and it opens up I'll, oh let me before we do i do want to ask you this i'm like literally curious about this like as educationists we're two people that believe in education right how do you think this conversation we just had about the data use sometimes getting it wrong and whatever how does that affect our feelings about still the need for like assessment data to be able to do interventions in schools like maybe you're not going to hit it every time but we still need it yeah and we believe in no child left behind you and i i believe which means that we like reporting data by subgroup so it gets very complicated because we do think it's important to report data based on subgroup, including racial subgroup. So that's why I think it's a little complicated. Not just reporting, though. I'll ask you specifically about using it for interventions, too, like at the state levels. Yeah, why not? If we just get data and we're not allowed to act on it, why even have the data, right? So that's why I think this is complicated. And I don't think it's as black and white as a lot of people who are bandying this article are. To me, there's so much in just the incompetence mm. part of this than there was in terms of malice. Well, I appreciate that. I think we landed in a good place on it. For once, Ravi and I agree on something. I know, this is great. The centralized purpose of data actually is still going to be important to us. How we use it or whatever is a work in progress. I don't think you should throw it all out. And I don't think you should make it God but we still need data on how our kids are doing. We really appreciate you all who listen to this show every week. And we would ask that you help us grow the show by sharing it with your friends and family and others. If you haven't subscribed to it already, subscribe to it. Send us some information about what you think is working well about the show and what you think we can do better. Also send us some topics and some ideas and some questions that you have so that we can cover them here on the show. I'll give you two ways to get that information to us. One, you can call us and the number to call us is 321-213-9171. The other way that you can get us information is just send us an email. Send it to citizenstuartshow at thebranchmedia.org and that will come to us. We will read it. We will listen to your voicemail. We will incorporate it into the way that we look at how we do the show. So you'll be impacting us and you'll be impacting all the other listeners by doing it. And we thank you very much for doing that. Also, I would just implore you go out and check out thebranchmedia.org. See all the shows that the Branch Media Network is putting out there into the world. There's one called Sweat the Technique. 
that actually is a great show if you care about the inner workings of how schools actually work and how instruction works. Also, the number one podcast in India, there's a billion people. That's a pretty big market. This is nothing to sneeze at. So anyways, you guys know that you're in the realm of greatness when you listen to the Branch Media shows and participate in the network. So we appreciate you as always, and we will see you next week on another episode of the Citizen Stewart Show. Thank you.